Uh, good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I am Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute and the moderator for today's event. Uh, you know, the whole topic of Chokeport got me thinking to uh, an exchange I had about 10 years ago when I was staff on the banking committee when someone asked me why they should care about banking. Uh, and obviously it's pre-financial crisis, so maybe it did seem a little bit boring, but my response at the time was, well, why don't you try going without banking services for a while and then you can tell me whether you think they're important or not. It seems to be that the Department of Justice must have been listening because they've decided uh, to test this theory. Unfortunately, they've decided to use many legitimate businesses as guinea pigs to kind of figure out what actually does happen when you exclude people from the banking system. Uh, I think, unfortunately, we already know what happens. We know that it's very difficult to run a business uh, without access to check clearing and basic check services. Uh, DOJ, I think, also knows this, too. Um, so uh, to, talk, to give you a little bit of an introduction about what we're going to talk about today, uh, the Department of Justice's Operation Choke Point, which they, are at, which they are implementing in coordination with the banking regulators, particularly and foremost the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, is an attempt to pressure banks to deny services to industries and individuals which the regulators deem to have, quote unquote, reputational risk with the bank. Um, of course, the regulators have not clearly defined reputational risk. Uh, they have largely put this forth as any entity or industry that is held in low public regard. Uh, I think by that measure, commercial banks might want to stop doing business with the federal government. Um, but in all seriousness, Operation Choke Point has very little basis in law. It is the federal government using its leverage over financial institutions to punish industries and individuals which it simply disapproves of. Of course, Operation Choke Point requires the active participation of the banking industry, but when the federal government maintains the discretion to decide which banks get rescued and which banks do not, I think it's fairly clear that banks have little choice but to cooperate. Also, given the Department of Justice's discretion over prosecution, it seems likely to me that banks that refuse to cooperate in Choke Point might find themselves on the receiving end of criminal prosecutions for unrelated activities. Uh, I have a hard time believing that there's not sort of a connection there. Uh, so while I encourage the banking industry to push back on Operation Choke Point, I also recognize the cost of them to doing so could be quite high. I do want to applaud that some industries have decided to push back. Uh, the payday lending industry is represented by the Community Financial Services Association, has recently filed suit against DOJ to stop Operation Choke Point. I applaud these efforts. Uh, unfortunately, the Department of Justice and the bank regulators are not alone uh, in this regard. As a recent report that we're going to talk about today from the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform reveals, the FTC is also looking into this area as well uh, and deciding whether it wants to engage in its own operation choke point. Um, you'll often hear DOJ claim that it is only targeting illegal activities, yet the House report from the Oversight Committee clearly reveals this to be false. Uh, some have defended the Department of Justice's actions as necessary to protect consumers, while I would believe that cutting off legitimate businesses from the banking system might actually harm consumers by reducing their choices, the DOJ lacks the authority to make that decision either way. Um, the House Oversight Committee report also makes clear that these decisions have been based upon little more than the policy preferences of the Department of Justice. For my friends who might applaud the Operation Choke Point as protecting the consumer, I would caution them that Operation Choke Point sets a precedent that could easily be misused by future administrations against the very activities which they may hold dear. Uh, we are very lucky to have with us today to talk about the report, to talk about DOJ's role in Operation Choke Point, Congressman Darrell Issa. 
The Congressman currently serves as the Chairman of the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. I think it's fair to say that Congressman Issa has conducted more oversight of this administration than any other member of Congress. I might even go as far to say maybe more than the rest of Congress combined. Uh, certainly more than the Senate combined. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in addition to chairing the House Oversight Committee, Congressman Issa also represents the 49th Congressional District of California. Uh, I had the pleasure of being out there about two weeks ago in Dana Point, and I can tell you it is a very lovely area. Uh, maybe one of the best coastlines in the entire world. So certainly encourage you to make your way out there at some point if you have not. Prior to his congressional service, uh, Representative Issa served as the CEO of Directed Electronics, which he founded and built into the nation's largest manufacturer of vehicle anti-theft devices. In 1994, he was named Entrepreneur of the Year by Inc. Magazine, Ernest Young, and the San Diego Union Tribune. During his leadership of uh, Directed Electronics, he also served as chairman of the Consumer Electronics Association, so knew a little bit about the policy process before coming here. Uh, with that, I am honored and delighted to welcome Chairman Issa to the podium. I guess the question is, where will this show? It will be right behind us. should be immediately. Well, I'd like to have these great companies behind me as soon as possible, because it makes my point. Uh, my tech, I can see my tech guys working as, on it. As I'm waiting for, for that to come up, the greatest threat to our environment, to our nation, to our world is global warming. We all agree on that. That's settled <laughs> science, right? As a result, the highest risk companies, the ones that are the greatest risk to your reputation if you're a bank, would be the Koch brothers, according to Harry Reid. Right? It would be all the carbon emission companies. We've got to shut off their access to banks and cash and, and certainly checks. Is that that absurd in this environment that if every single week the Senate Majority Leader, a man who's done so much oversight on the Koch <laughs> brothers, can't help himself but to mention on the Senate floor the Koch brothers because they, in fact, you know, we're putting out carbon and, and that's destroying our environment and every, everything from hurricanes to just bad weather is, is, is caused by that. Where do you stop if you start with any law-abiding legal business, lawful enterprise, and decide that they shouldn't have access to the critical, if you will, ability in a non-cash society? Now, in our report, we listed a, uh, a few companies, and that's why these are kind of important, that the uh, FDIC targeted specifically. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be uh, politically correct, and I'm going to mention that I agree that perhaps targeting pornography should have been on that list. Pyramid sales schemes, well, to the extent that they were like the other example, Ponzi schemes, they should have been on that list. Ponzi schemes, of course, are there. There are unlawful businesses listed there, inherently unlawful. A Ponzi scheme is inherently unlawful. But mixed in there are telemarketing. Now, the largest single consumers of telemarketing that I know of, at least every two years, are, well, the President of the United States, the Senate, the House, um, state officials. Are we to say that, that I can only deal in cash if I want to have somebody do a robocall? Or is the intent of the FDIC to make sure that we can't do robocalls? 
And does that mean that OFA, the president's PAC, won't be able to do them? Now, for many people, that might be feel pretty good not getting those calls. But I put these up because they targeted firearm sales and ammunition sales. These are the companies. America's largest single company, as far as employment, private sector company, Walmart. These are the people who sell guns and ammo. Are we going to cut off their, uh, their ability to have access to banks? Of course not, for now. But if you start with payday lenders, not because they're money laundering, not because they're doing some criminal enterprise, but simply because you don't like the interest rates they charge, then you begin picking winners and losers based on whether you like what they do or perhaps like who they give to in their political giving. That's the reality of choke point, is if you empower the government to pick winners and losers within lawful enterprises, there is no place for you to stop. Is there a problem in a cash economy? Absolutely. And I didn't bring a slide for this one, but you can all go to The Economist and see this, this lovely lady who is a dancer who apparently receives large amounts of cash while dancing. She found herself cut off because she was putting too much cash in to support her children. Now, what did they effectively do? They've said, if you've got cash, stay in a cash economy. So I'm going to go through that list again for a moment. And I'm trying not to lecture, but this is so frustrating. Cable box descramblers, I guess they would sell cash, and I'm not sure that they're a lawful enterprise. But firearm sales and ammunition sales, what if these companies get out of it because they don't want to be hassled by the FDIC? Are all firearms and, and, and ammunition going to now be sold for cash anonymously? Is that in the best interest of the American people? I'm a free market person, free market beyond most people that would even come to Cato and say they're free market. But I understand why we would like to have some traceability of, of people who buy firearms that are later used in a crime. But if you force it out of credit cards, you're inherently making them less traceable when there's a crime. Certainly, uh, you can go through the list uh, in our report, and I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll do one that, that really got me. Home-based charities. Now, there is a group, a group that has to be monitored for criminal activity, is home-based <laughs> charities. Um, I suppose child care facilities, too, shouldn't be able to accept your check or credit card. What's missing from the list, and I started off with uh, the hydrocarbon uh, consumers as, as high risk, they didn't mention high-tech startups that, you know, you, you, you get into an uh, a internet startup as a bank and you loan them a little money or even allow them just to use the angel funding they get and run it through your account. They could make a product that, like Facebook, had unattended consequences or, in fact, researched, as Facebook recently did, researched uh, whether or not antagonistic postings and how they would affect you. That had to be pretty embarrassing. Even Facebook had apologized for it. Well, should they be dropped by the banks because of the, the inherent risk? Certainly, if Facebook shouldn't be dropped, you shouldn't bother with small startup companies because they're run by 20-something-year-old kids with, uh, with a degree and a bunch of pizza working out of a single room. That's the absurdity of choke point. The reality, and I think you teed it up very well, is that it is, in fact, a political gotcha waiting to happen. 
right now, payday lending and perhaps the firearms industry are the targets. But the targets of Richard Nixon would have been the exact opposite, wouldn't they have been? They'd have been somebody that was perceived to be on the left. We can't have it. The reason that our committee is spending the time and energy, and we're not done with it, we're certainly not done with the FTC's uh, overreach uh, in this and other areas, is that if we allow it to start, it really is one of those slippery slopes where one lawful business put out of business by a call to the, from the FDIC threatening a bank is all it takes for us to say that cannot be allowed to continue. It has to be reversed. It has to absolutely be reversed. The FDIC has a, and, and Bill Isaac, the former FDIC chairman, said this pretty well in a lengthy article. The FDIC has an obligation to make sure that the, the institution is properly funded and secured in case of losses. But a bank has every single right to engage in a certain amount of risky loans. The FDIC is to ensure that their capital base is sufficient so that the, the depositor is protected and particularly the FDIC fund is protected. That's a question of quantity of risky uh, enterprises, not any one enterprise. And I think that's where choke point really crosses the line is that if, if you want to loan money to, uh, I'll just say an escort service, since that was on the list, and there's a risk, that has to be weighed. But the FDIC needs to find out, is there a bank that is only loaning to these enterprises or only loaning to firearms? And the answer, of course, is no. Now, this is supposed to be about question and answer, but I want to just run you through one last statement. I put these, uh, asked to have these put up because this list includes products and services sold by every Fortune 500 company. And yet it's very clear that Choke Point really is all about payday lending. It's all about one enterprise that I'm not terribly keen on. And I'm very happy to say I've never had to use payday lending or a pawn shop, except I've bought at pawn shops. But since Roman times, there has been effectively a pawn shop available to people. And if we take that away, then we better make sure that we really want to take that away as a country. And we want to have a lively debate on it. We want to make sure we legislate it. And then we want to ask the bigger question, which is, can we even constitutionally do that? And my answer to you is, I don't believe we can constitutionally interfere with people's free right to make these kinds of decisions. We can have transparency. We can certainly have uh, documents that allow you to know exactly what you're getting into. But if we take away payday lending because we don't like it, then we ultimately will take away pawn shops and we will take away one after another pieces of commerce. Lastly, because I have made it clear that, and you made it clear that the payday lending uh, organizations are fighting back, they're fighting back for another reason. They're highly regulated. This isn't just a lawful business. This is a lawful business that is both overseen federally and regulated in basically every state in the union. And in some cases, regulated to the complete satisfaction of the voters and taxpayers. So with that, I would very much like to take your questions. Uh, and if you deviate into, you know, what do you think Lois Lerner's hiding? I'll probably give you, you know, smaller answers. 
Uh, I would ask you wait for the microphone. We will have uh, microphones around the room and identify yourself uh, and uh, try to have a question uh, right over here. Uh, no, no, I'd rather, I'd rather not lose any friends in the audience, so you please pick out the people. <laughs> <laughs> Very politically correct. Very PC. Thank you. Um, of course. Um, before I ask my question, I want to tell you, when I moved to California in the 70s, I didn't have a credit card. I had cash and a bank account, and I went to rent a car, and they told me, no, you can't. you got to have a credit card. So, you know, if you talk about this. How it is interesting. It is interesting. That's still the case. You, is you it? Just, yeah, you... you People come in from other countries and so on, and they've got passports, they've got cash, but yeah, we need a credit card. I got the credit card now. By the way, even if it has a very low limit, and a debit card's okay, even if it does no money in the bank, the, but they gotta see that. I don't have that, I'm older now. <laughs> I, my question is about the banking. I get it with the payday lending. I get, how would you correlate what's happening now with the banking industry to the SNL bailout? Because if you remember, maybe you don't, you're young. If you and I got involved. Ooh, thank I got, you. There's I, a special place in heaven for politicians I, thank like you. you. I got very involved when we worked on the savings loan bailout when I lived in Seattle. That the upshot of that, that there would be three banks in the world. B of A, um, two other ones, two big, three, they would be running everything. So how is or is or did the SNL bailout have any impact on what's happening today with banking, with regulations, with payday lending, which I think is, has a lot of problems. How would you, if there is any correlation? You know, uh, and, and I mentioned Bill Isaac earlier, who's written extensively on this, uh, because what he saw as FDIC chair versus what they didn't deal with, with savings alone, the cost of bailing the, two, the, the failing banks out uh, was fairly de minimis, and it, and it, and it didn't require a separate federal uh, in, uh, uh, insertion. Savings and loan did. But the answer, I think, to your question is, those are all, you know, zero, small amount compared to TARP. TARP was, in fact, the, what created Dodd-Frank, what's created this tremendous increase in power and this coordination, uh, and it, I call it, I'll be honest, a pretty unholy alliance, with Treasury, the Fed, the FDIC, and even other agencies like FTC, all believing now that they have this proactive obligation. And it's a proactive obligation that affects the large and the small. With the large, it's billion dollars, multi-billion dollar settlements, and you see them both in US and foreign banks. With the smaller banks, it's driving them right out of business. And there's no question at all, if you want to see a few banks all too big to fail, that are highly sensitive to what our government wants, just allow Dodd-Frank to stay as it is, just allow things like choke point with the FDIC, where the FDIC makes a phone call. This is just a field agent, somebody who doesn't even know any better, he's just read the directive, and he calls up because he sees that you're working with uh, you know, somebody who's got a gun shop, and, uh, and they may or may not have a bias against guns, they call up the bank and say, you know, I see that you've got several, uh, you know, gun shops. Uh, we're very concerned. That phone call will get those companies dropped. Credit unions so far have been slightly more insulated, but credit unions have a separate attack, which is that when we deregulated credit unions, what we did was we created the same race to be a large credit union. Uh, credit unions had 
and can't, some of them still continue to have a very special place. You join a credit union as sort of a fraternal. They clearly serve you, uh, and they're fairly narrow. What we've done is, is we've said to credit unions, get big or die. And so what you're seeing is they're all changing their stripes and becoming bank-like. My guess is that ultimately credit unions are on a, unless we change something, they're on a pathway toward choosing to be banks. And part of the reason is that the banks continue to attack credit unions because they can assemble uh, base capital without taxation. And for some reason, banks have always disliked credit unions. But once they started being more bank-like and getting larger, that war is going on. And, and from your time on the banking committee, you certainly have seen Absolutely. that, uh, that they, all, they all fall under financial services and they all have absolutely ability to talk ill of the other. <laughs> that, that, that is absolutely case. While we, while we get to the next question, I will emphasize, I think, something that the chairman said, which is, you know, choke point to me is only really effective in a world of concentrated banking when the federal government can bring in 12 banks and that's essentially the vast majority of the market. It's far easier than trying to negotiate with thousands and thousands of entities. Uh, and so to me, this is a corollary of some of the too big to fail issues. There was a question right here. Um, uh, the microphone is coming. Oh, there, right. the microphone. Oh, well, we'll start with it later and I'll get right back. Possession is more than nine points when it comes <laughs> it to the mic. Yes. Um, thank you so much for all you're doing for the country. I just uh, think you're doing a magnificent job. Thank you so much. You're going to have to speak Could up. you hold the microphone still, a little closer? Oh, okay. Oh, there we go. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for all you're doing for the country. Um, I wanted to uh, ask you about, um, uh, my question has to do with marijuana legalization and the banks. Uh, I'm adamantly opposed to marijuana legalization. I think you should simply uh, remand people to drug court programs and the like and use the criminal justice system that way. Uh, to help people get off substance abuse. But um, in Colorado and in Washington, what are the uh, ramifications of this uh, FDIC uh, initiative for the banking, uh, their banking? Because I understand now they have to do it all in cash. Well, it is interesting that uh, uh, they list pharmaceuticals as a risk. That's why we put CVS and uh, Rite Aid and so on up there as high-risk companies that we should look at. But you're exactly right. Do we really want the marijuana business, to the extent that it's legal, uh, to be a cash business as it has been in the past, thus at a minimum encouraging tax avoidance, uh, tax evasion? Uh, the answer, of course, is no, which goes back to that basic premise, which is you and I, uh, I think, would be very alike in, in, in being very concerned about the national legalization of marijuana. But to the extent that something is lawful, they should have access to the banks. And if they don't, then you're forcing a ca cash economy. And a cash economy is, in fact, one of the ways that criminal enterprises, money laundering, and other activities go on. You know, you don't have to watch The Godfather to understand that the history of Criminal enterprises has been all about working in cash, not in traceable events. And that's exactly the point, is if we force them, even uh, the Colorado marijuana situation, force them into cash, we literally lose any defining benefit there may be from the lawful legalization with all of the downside that, that you see. Yes, sir. Or uh, what, got does the, mic the microphone come in and... Uh... 
down in front, second row, down front center. If one of the microphones this way, thank you. What I found it really works well is if somebody knows they're next on deck and they already have the mic. Exactly. So you, one of you gets to pick the next winner. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, hi, I'm Scott Talbot with the Electronic Transactions Association. Uh, Mark, thanks for hosting this. And Mr. Chairman, thank you for your leadership. And thank you issue. for your work. Sure. Well, I'm just about to talk about it. Thank you. Perfect <laughs> setup. Um, well, do you think I support self-regulation having been the chairman of the Consumer Electronics Association or standard setting? Yeah. Somebody must have leaked you my question in advance. <laughs> Perfect segue. So the Electronic Transaction Association represents uh, the major players in the electronic payments industry, credit cards, debit cards, prepaid cards. Uh, and we obviously share everybody's concerns about going after fraud. It's a major aspect of what we do on a daily basis to try to end fraud. Uh, to demonstrate our commitment to that effort, uh, we produced what you just held up, which are a series of over 100 pages of underwriting guidelines, standards for the entire industry not just ETA members, but for everybody, to, to increase their ability to detect uh, fraud, both in the onboarding process of merchants as well as in the long-term relationship. Um, we believe these guidelines, uh, as a self-regulatory effort, are a better, more targeted, more efficient way to approach this problem rather than the sort of ham-fisted shotgun approach that is a choke point with all its sort of collateral damage. Uh, we're concerned with the DOJ's efforts, and we're also concerned, as you are, uh, with the FTC, who, is th who we believe is thinking about getting into uh, Operation Choke Point-like activities uh, similar to the DOJ. So my question is exactly to you is, wouldn't this be, or do you think Congress agrees, uh, and your leadership role agree, that the better way to approach this problem is to form a collaborative basis with the industry to go after fraud and use examples like the ETA's guidelines to go after fraud rather than sort of approaching it from uh, the choke point-like stance? Well, the answer is self-evident. You're exactly right. We should do the latter. I might note something. Uh, first of all, I, I was a little late because I was in a meeting looking at the overreach of the FTC, and our committee is it has a number of areas that we're looking at because we're very concerned that they've decided to stretch their power uh, very clearly to lawful activities in which there is no violation of the law, and they decide to go after somebody who may have used not only ordinary care and an or a standard of ordinary care, but actually a level of care greater than regulatory bodies, greater than the U.S. government uses on itself, and yet the FTC has no problem at all going after these enterprises. Uh, and that's a classic example here. I think the important uh, point that you're, you're making is if, in fact, we ask for is risk based on a lack of transparency of enterprises that transact a large amount in cash, that's a fair question. It really is. It's the reason that when any of us enter the country, we're asked, do you have more than $10,000 in cash? But let's remember, all you have to do is say yes, and you're done. That's all you have to do is declare it and, of course, be able to explain whether you left with 20000 for a vacation and came back with 11000 or whether, in fact, you went over and your Uncle Tanous gave you $10,000 and you're <clears throat> very happy to have it. Uh, the reality is, is that it's fair to ask. It's not fair to cut off banking relationships simply because there's a large amount of cash or because you don't like a lawful enterprise. And that latter really bothers me because payday lending has phenomenal transactional uh, visibility. Every state and the federal government can 
look very clearly at the activities of payday lending, every customer, every transaction, every signature. So it's the exact opposite of a opaque uh, enterprise from a standpoint of cash versus versus check. Uh, let me ask the, the next question. Uh, uh, please raise your hand, but also stand up so my uh, interns can identify you. So we're happy. The advantage to... of always having a mic. <laughs> it, it is. So uh, back here, was there a question? Hi. Yeah. My question. So the the things that they're trying to do, the uh, these federal agencies are about essentially oversight, regulation, that kind of thing, trying to allegedly protect the consumer. So, but we have to turn that around. And how do we protect ourselves from, like you described, if some random field agent decides, well, I feel like the agency has some uh, call to be, you know, sticking our nose in here, and then he starts an initiative and goes after us. I mean, it's the same thing, uh, you know, with, uh, uh, we, 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 I mean, we, the bigger example that's on everybody's minds uh, in the country right now is probably the IRS, um, and, you know, where do they get their marching orders from? But what can we do about, you know, By the way, the director of the NSA is really happy that the words IRS are more on the news. Yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, what, what, what actually can be done about, uh, you know, what can be done? What would be the shape of legislation or whatever that would, that would uh, you know, curtail that, kind of, uh, curtail that kind of thing? Well, when I came to Congress, uh, I, uh, I quickly started quoting uh, a scene out of uh, The Goodbye Girl where Richard Dreyfus is outed for being an actor because he starts giving his credit. And uh, she immediately recognized, oh, God, another actor. And I noticed that anytime you ask a congressman, his answer would always, or her answer would always be, I've got a piece of legislation, I've got a bill. My answer with the job that I have right now is just the opposite. We are a country of too many laws too poorly applied. And before we endlessly add more legislative fixes, uh, particularly big ones where they say act, it's clear that oversight that shames the misuse of existing laws is critical. Oversight to get proper implementation of laws is critical. And the overreach of agencies uh, has to be exposed. That's really what's so great about the job that I have and have had now for over five years is oversight and reform. People think that we're going to do a lot of reform legislation, and we do a little bit. But the vast majority of what we do is the reform that comes by federal agencies being outed for seeing that we're watching. And in some cases, private enterprise uh, such as, and I'll use my, one of my predecessors, steroids in baseball, where baseball was just turning a blind eye to it and it was trickling down to young people. And uh, my predecessor, and, and on a bipartisan basis, was able to shed light on it and get the industry to clean itself up. But it was an unlawful act that everyone would turn a blind eye to. So the answer, I think, to your question is, we need only to add tools of transparency, and you were very kind uh, in the introduction to say we do more oversight than all the other committees, um, and I couldn't agree with you because I like too many of my fellow chairmen, <laughs> but I could agree with you on the Senate. The obligation of doing vigorous oversight uh, and expanding the number of entities doing it, the number of committees that are that are not looking at making new laws, but seeing that the laws on the books are either being fairly enforced or changed based on the unintended consequences. If Congress does that, then we deserve to be the first body uh, uh, that we were intended by the Constitution to be. If we don't, then essentially King Bush, 
King Obama, they're all going to be a reality because we cede to the executive branch to do what they want to do, including uh, the intimidation of, of the bureaucratic state. I have a, I have yes. a question, sort of a follow-up to the marijuana example. So do you support banks breaking, in a way, breaking the federal law to allow transactions at the state level when marijuana is technically against the law federally? I think a, a state-chartered bank has an absolute obligation to support enterprise consistent with uh, their charter in that state and the laws passed in that state. That's federalism at, at its most basic. The question of whether or not the federal government should intervene to stop it is, is clearly one that I think I can answer this way. You don't get to pick the laws you enforce. If we're going to say to the federal banks, you can't do it, then where is Eric Holder, the Department of Justice, the alcohol, tobacco, and fire? You either enforce these laws vigorously and disagree with your states criminally every day in meaningful ways, or you don't. But to say that the banks can't, well, in fact, there's a, a very clear uh, hands-off by the law enforcement is inconsistent. I'm only a legislator. I don't run the executive branch, and I'm limited, rightfully so, to the 10th Amendment. What states get to do, they get to do. What the federal government preempts based on its constitutional mandates uh, is for the third branch, the, the judges, to decide. I think there's a real question about whether Colorado's law is, in fact, overtly contrary to, uh, to those, uh, those, those tenets of our Constitution. But that should be decided. There should be a test case brought. Uh, and and the, the real question is, do have the states ceded the right to all pharmaceutical decisions, tobacco, alcohol, prescription and non-prescription drugs? I actually think they have. Uh, they've ceded it by, in, in all these other areas, and they're trying to pull it back in one area. No one thinks that we should be able to uh, have over-the-counter prescription drugs in uh, uh, uh including cocaine, which is prescription available, but just have it as over-the-counter in, in Colorado for recreational use. And yet, Colorado thinks they can take a drug which is federally classified and requires a prescription, uh, and they think they can deprescribe it. But that's for the courts to settle. My view is I have to ask the federal government, this executive branch, to enforce its obligation when the president raised very high, raised his right hand, and took an oath. He, he did it to defend the Constitution, to support and defend the Constitution. But more importantly, he said he would execute the laws faithfully. I think this administration has a long way to go to show that they execute these laws faithfully and consistently. Is that too long an answer? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that it's, it's interesting if you compare the different industries in question, because DOJ, for instance, in payday, where it was debated in Dodd-Frank and it was rejected outlawing payday. So payday is legal at the federal level. Um, but what DOJ has often done is looked at, oh, well, look at New York law here. And so they've decided in some instances to enforce state law. And then they've decided in other instances that, well, this is legal in state law, so we're going to enforce the federal law. So to me, I think it further evidence that this is not really something where DOJ has taken a consistent position, but they have picked and choose. And of course, the marijuana is an, even a better example in that they've changed their position 180 degrees. They've gone from, well, 
you can't deal with it, now we can deal with it, and it's not because of a change in law, it was because of a change in the political environment. So uh, again, this is something to me that's so clearly driven by shifting politics and policy preferences and not a, a strong legal basis. I know that we had another question somewhere. Um, there's two questions here, so what I will ask is both of you, my interns, get... Uh, Your interns are actually going to ask the next questions. They're holding the, the mic. They're, they're the ones holding the mic. So what I will say is get an intern to each of these gentlemen, and the one further in the back we'll start with, and then we'll go to the gentleman in, up front after that. Appreciate your time here today. Had the you got to hold the mic, the mic very close. Little closer. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah, I can hear you now, Verizon. Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you for coming today. Have the powers that be thought about people that use these services, because I doubt that many people in this auditorium use these services, the people that do use the payday, are they now supposed to go to loan sharks when they shut this place down? And I have one other comment about cash businesses, one that's near and dear to my heart. I like to play poker. I go to a casino nearby. That has to be the largest cash business around. Are they going to stop lending money to these places to build them, except for the fact that Harry Reid is from a state that has the most casinos in the world? I mean, that to me is the largest cash business out there. Well, with, with Harry Reid, it's whose bread thy eat, whose praise thy sing. Uh, <laughs> he'll probably want to stop other states' casinos. Uh, but I think your point is exactly right. Uh, are casinos regulated at a state level? Primarily, yes. Uh, do they look at the money transaction? Do they have vigorous anti-fraud and anti-money laundering activities? They do both in their self-interest and because we insist on it. Uh, and that's the right thing to do. We certainly want to make sure that uh, uh, Treasury's Secret Service, for example, looks and says, you know, our, how do we keep uh, uh, casinos from being a laundering for uh, counterfeit money and so on? These are federal requirements that are consistent with the law and that the American people support. But your point is exactly right. Where do you stop? I guarantee they stop before they rain on Harry Reid's parade. And that's a purely political. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for coming today. Um, I, look, I never turned down an opportunity to come to Cato. <laughs> I, I just like to have Cato a, a little bit more represented on the Hill. We're, we're going to remember that you said that. <laughs> so my and after is, I'm not chairman, will you still invite me back? Of course, of course. My question is about um, specifically about pity lending. And it seems like your depiction today, and as well as the House report, um, is that this is an industry-wide thing, not just about uh, you know requiring more... Um, focused by banks or risk-adjusted regulation, as you mentioned. Um, and uh, Mr. Klebrier mentioned uh, the Big 12 as this being a, a kind of industry-wide thing, maybe. There seem to be uh, banks, even among the Big 12, that are still lending to pity lenders and that are still involved in the industries that are uh, allegedly being choked off. Um, so how does, that, how does that jibe with the larger narrative that you've been creating? And do you expect that those banks, too, will be choked off, will be forced to choke off these industries, or will certain banks be allowed to, to remain? That's a great question, and I don't know the answer to it, but I'll, I'll turn it around uh, and sort of give you the libertarian answer, which is every single bank in America has a non-discrimination requirement, and their, their right to discriminate has to be fact-based. So if I'm running payday lending, check cashing, uh, or a home-based uh, charity, I should be able to go to any bank for deposit activities because they are open as a public service entity. They're open to the public, and they have to take all, or they have to have a valid reason, like 
my checks bounce or something. If they don't have that, then they absolutely positively, in my opinion, have a breach. So the customer should be able to go wherever he or she wants to go. And if they're denied, it has to be for a valid reason. Now, there are some valid reasons. For example, a check cashing uh, operation, and we've been talking about payday lending, but they're actually very much attacking the check cashing, and sometimes these enterprises are doing both. They have a high amount of bounced checks. It's part of the risk they take, no matter how much they try. A bank can decide that they want to raise the cost of those bounced checks to a point where you could go somewhere else. They may not want to be dealing in large transactions of checks that go both ways. They have a right to do that, but they have to do it equally no matter what enterprise there is. They can't simply say, somebody at the FDIC called me and as a result, I'm dropping you. And to the extent that there's one example, and there are more than one, there are many, many examples, the federal government has exceeded its mandate. That phone call was per se wrong by the FDIC. Even Department of Justice making a call saying we're looking into it and scaring banks inherently was wrong. That's our point is you're exactly right. There still are some banks and there may continue to be some banks and they may uh, more and more uh, coalesce behind fewer and fewer. But at the end of the day, it's about do we protect the, the, the first example or do we wait till it gets to our door? Our committee is trying to stop this activity at DOJ, FDIC, Federal Trade Commission, and the list will consumer financial, it will, will, all of those, we have to hold them to the strict, what rights did we give up in giving them authority? And if it's one more than the right we gave up, it's wrong. I will emphasize, as I pointed out earlier, I mean, choke point does require the cooperation of the banks. And I think it's fair to say that um, the cooperation has differed across banks. Uh, I would uh, venture a guess that um, those that look at themselves as a bit of crony capitalists and come to Washington for favors are more, are more willing to dispense favors to Washington at the same time than some banks that do not. Uh, let's remember that in the TARP, when the big nine were brought up, there were actually a few banks who said they didn't want to participate. So uh, again, to me, as long as there's that discretion from the federal government over who gets rescued and who doesn't, who gets prosecuted and who doesn't, these things are always going to impact the willingness of banks to participate. Uh, and so those banks that are pushing back and saying we're not going to cut off customers just because Washington doesn't like them, you know, I applaud that. I, I wish more banks would take that uh, line. Unfortunately, I think what's going to happen is fewer banks will be able to stand up. By the way, how many of you, just a show of hands, have read uh, Stress Test, have read uh, Tim Geithner's book? Just me and... Okay. Those who have it, I'd like you to loan it. I don't want you to buy another one, but, <laughs> but I'd like you to loan it sequentially to everyone else in the room. You've got to understand from one of the people that was there as part of the problem in New York before uh, the, the meltdown and who was the architect of much of this through the process, he thinks his one mistake is they didn't do enough oppressive behavior soon enough. They didn't have enough Keynesian bailout soon enough. And he goes on and on talking about all the things they should have done more of besides TARP. You really need to understand that to understand how thrilled he is to have today a program like this, that proactive, progressive activity. And he's pretty, I mean, he's the only guy I ever, ever saw, uh, you know, talk about anti-Keynesians. Okay, you know, it's, it's like normally people talk about the pros. He managed to come up with the term anti-Keynesian. Read it and you will begin to, don't buy it, just read it. 
Uh, you, uh, copyright laws are not violated if you borrow a book. Uh, but when you, when you read it, you begin to realize that this is not a veiled threat, that stopping choke point and stopping the banks from exercising, or the regulators from exercising against the banks, if we don't stop it now, it becomes a pattern that won't stop for 100 years. I know we had a question over here. Mr. Chairman, may your investigations be successful. Uh, I'd like to broaden. If the public finds out, then we're a success. Well, that's part of my question. Um, DOJ, and that means the White House, uh, are not afraid to show open contempt, not only to your committee, but to the Congress as a whole. How do you see this republic regaining the balance that it used to have? And I, I, I understand that this has been a brewing problem through several administrations, but this administration uh, sets a new standard. Um, and do you expect you might have more support from the leadership of your party after November, uh, assuming that the, that the House stays where it is? or maybe We're hoping to get better. Well, yes. all right, but uh, worst case. And third, how do you, do you have any idea how to deal with a mainstream media which manifestly wants to obscure or deform did, uh, what, what you're up to? Thank you. Those are, those are all great questions. I think you've tipped off your politics, though. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, uh, for, for folks that didn't watch Popeye growing up, uh, he used to say something like, this is all I can take, so I can't take no more. <laughs> uh, and then he took his spinach, and then he beat everyone up. Uh, Speaker Boehner was, was and continues to be a person who inherently tries to make things work without excessive force. He got to the point where he announced he was going to sue the president, that he was going to use the, uh, uh, the, the, the Gowdy bill that passed the House but not the Senate, uh, and that we were going to court. And I've offered three, uh, I've dropped three resolutions that would be in support of different elements, Obamacare, immigration, and so on, uh, because he's reached the point of realizing that Article I, the, the Congress has to assert its rights uh, and obligations if we're going to keep Article Two from doing exactly what our founding fathers wanted to avoid. They could have had a king if they wanted one. They debated it. They decided not to have a king. They decided to have terms. They decided uh, on what the oath would be. They decided to limit the executive branch or the administrative branch, as I preferred it to be. They wanted to limit its powers, except as commander in chief, to be extremely narrow. And they succeeded for a time. But I think the answer to your first question is the best one for all of us. How do we maintain, how do we get back that? Well, first you have to recognize that the Congress once passed the Alien Sedition Act in the Adams period. And one of the first things they did is they went, they tried a member of Congress for a crime of, of speaking ill of the president from before the bill, the law was passed and locked him up. Fortunately, he was reelected. But <laughs> the fact is, this is not new. It's not new that Congress will literally give to the executive branch an unreasonable tool and then allow the executive branch to use it. You can recover from it. There is no longer an Alien Sedition Act, and I can speak Ill, Ill of the president anywhere I want to, um, and with the exception of getting very, very bad press, uh, I, I will, in fact, survive. And so... 
Will the press continue to be on the other side sometimes? Sure. But it's a free press. Anyone's free to join it. Every one of you can start a blog. Every one of you can start something better than the newspaper. You know, I, I suspect that if somebody on the right decided to take on the Huffington Post uh, and took Ariana Huffington's uh, lead, you could start another Huffington Post on the, on the right pretty effectively, pretty quickly. Uh, and the Drudge Report and others uh, do that. So investing in the past uh, causes you to look at the left. The question is, when will the right invest enough to drive the left crazy? Uh, you know, Fox is certainly an example of somebody who drives the left crazy. We just need more of them. I think we've got time for another question or two. Um, I don't have votes till 6.30, so I can outlast <laughs> all of you. I said, actually, uh, the question was taxes on the Taxes that have gone up on my bill, thank you very much. <laughs> and the taxes we would pay if you do lawsuits, thank you very much. And so do you believe, well, do you support I'll, the Time Warner Comcast merger? I'll, I'll leave it to the chairman whether he's... Yeah, no, 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 it's a, uh, take FTC, off the chairman's hat. Member of, member of judiciary, we FTC. held a hearing on it. And I'll take credit and blame for my, my position. My position was that they had carefully crafted a technically legal under existing antitrust and pro-commerce uh, clauses merger. So the answer is they're going to get their merger. They're going to get their merger because they dotted the I's carefully. Uh, Charter Communications is going to get a certain amount. They're, they're moving everything around because they went to their lawyers and they studied this and they've made it fit the boxes. So the answer in our country is when you fit the boxes of the existing law and court decisions, then you're entitled to get the answer you're entitled to based on that. That's why rule of law matters. At the same time, and in just those five minutes I was given, plus a little overtime I grabbed, uh, I said it's time for a change from the ground up. That in fact, Time Warner, Cox, uh, 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 Charter Communication, it doesn't matter who you have, they are, at, they are normally either a monopoly or a duopoly in your home. And as a result, your relevant market is, I don't have a lot of choice, and they get to get what they need from me. I don't get necessarily get to have a competitive market. That's the problem we have. It's not one of these companies. It's the fact that what we've done is we've made the relevant market 30% market share nationally, which is ridiculous. The market is, how much do you have in your home? And if all you have currently is satellite, which is until it changes some, it's a poor cousin, and cable, or you're, too, you're either maybe you have DSL, maybe you don't, what happens is these act like monopolies or duopolies, and as a result, you don't have real competition. So the answer is we need to redo it to where the consumer, consumer choice becomes the determinant of whether you have a monopoly. And if, if you allow for only one choice in a particular area, then in fact you need to be scrutinized based on what would be the fair price in a competitive market, or even better than that, in other areas where there are competitive markets, are your prices sharper than they are where they're not? And by the way, I said that for a reason is, you will find that where they have uh, Fios and others coming in, they are coming up with lots of creative offers in those areas that they're not making available in others. And that's a good test of whether or not there's antitrust behavior. So yes, I support it because they've dotted the I's, but I think this is where we have to change the guidelines in our antitrust. 
And by the way, the fact that two committees, the FCC over at Energy and Commerce thinks they can regulate everything, <laughs> and we're limited to the existing antitrust laws is why I called for us to really look at the antitrust laws because real competition and access is the only way to get new and innovative products at a lower and lower price and a better value for the consumer. The FCC can never, never create, or any other agencies can never really create competition. They're at best calling balls and strikes. Pardon me? Well, remember, we, we already have a 9% approval rate, you know, we don't, <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is why I wondered why we weren't on that FDIC I list. Reputational risk there. Um, well, I think we've got time for one more. Okay, first, I'd like to thank you for coming and speaking today. So recently, Congressman Luke DeMeyer introduced a bill, H.R. 4986, um, to the Congress that specifically addresses, um, what is it again? Operation Choke, Choke point. point. And so do you believe that it has come to the point where we have to pass more legislation to address this specific issue, or will it resolve on its own sometime? Uh, you know, and Congressman Lukemeyer, I know, did it not figuring it was going to become law because he knows what's happening in the Senate. But he did it for the same reason that we printed our, published our report and that we will have follow-on hearings. We've got to do what baseball pitchers do anytime somebody's crowding the plate. Uh, and that is we're going to put the ball close enough that either they're going to jump back or we're going to hit them with the ball because what they're doing is wrong. And we've got to show that. You can't pass a law for every bureaucrat to do the right thing. You can only pass laws which are generally good and then see that they're faithfully enforced. And, and since this was the last question, I'll close this way. If Congress had passed absolutely no laws, none, just annual appropriations and, and authorizations for what the executive branch could do on a two-year basis, and we had passed no supplemental laws, our republic would be strong. The Constitution itself, which defines broad brush behavior, in fact, was mostly sufficient and could have done this republic very well. States would have been better incubators of ideas, and good ideas would have flourished, and over time, states would adopt them. And the federal government didn't necessarily need to codify every good idea. And when we look at the codification, Dred Scott being a decision on one, we often made the wrong decision. So coming to Washington doesn't mean, and Congressman Luckermeyer is doing the right thing in shedding light on this, but it doesn't mean that all we're here to do is make more laws. In fact, the best thing we could do is to put in a grandfather on every single act and law that exist and require that they be reauthorized on not more than 10-year, hopefully not more than five-year increments, and force people to ask the question of, is piling more laws on the answer, or is, in fact, letting laws expire, in many cases, the best to do? If the Americans with Disability Act truly was expiring and we had to pass a new one, would we, would we still allow so many people to sue uh, without any remedy or advance notice, employers who have done everything they think right, companies that have done everything they think is right, but they're one degree off on a ramp. We can't learn from our mistakes if the assumption is that every time there's something wrong, we pass another law. 
Sometimes what we have to do is say, how do we start over? I don't want to completely eliminate uh, antitrust laws, but I want to look at them to say, are they serving us well? And do have we supplanted good competitive uh, laws with endless regulation? Because the FDIC's power in choke point and DOJ's power in choke point comes from never filing a criminal case and never actually closing down a bank, but simply threatening banks so that they get out of doing something that is lawful and is, is risky based on this weird situation that you might be embarrassed by a particular enterprise like payday lending or escort service or firearm sales. Now, I'm sure that somebody's going to be embarrassed by, uh, by representing Walmart as a bank because they sell firearms. I just don't believe that that's a bank's prerogative, and it certainly isn't our federal government's prerogative. So I want to thank you for thank bringing you. me on, on Choke Point. Um, have me back on, on other subjects. Absolutely. Well, there might with. be some health. Thank you. <laughs>